Alexander, can you move your telephone uh, cell phone back into landscape mode? It's better that way. So anyway, I have a question for all of you, and that is, is that how many of you developed a practice through dedication and discipline? How about you, Todd? Because that's the way that I did it. Boy, was I dedicated. Boy, was I disciplined. I've definitely, been through, I've definitely been through that that path before in a lot of ways. Yeah, but I think the ones that stuck were not from discipline. It was more from a naturally arising enjoyment or internal drive that got me to actually stick to something. When I forced myself through willful discipline, I just rebelled against it and then, you know, burn out pretty quickly. All right. How about you, Robert? Um, not really consistently. Um, I feel like the first couple of months of practice, I was able to meditate every day. And then after that, it would be like, like every, you know, every couple of days, like not like perfect discipline. I've never been able to get that down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How about you, Eric? Well, what I like the most about um, your way of exposing or um, yeah, teaching Buddhism was that you said uh, that we don't need to work and we, we, we can just chill in life and stuff. And that's what really clicked for me because I used to practice Vipassana, uh, yeah, like uh, in a serious way. And I saw that it was bringing me a lot of stress. And now I just associate the practice with uh, relaxing and chilling and having fun. Okay. All right. So, uh, that's the direction that we go in. Every one of us who ever hears about meditation hears its benefits, and then we have the thought, I ought to do that. I should meditate. And then what happens is, is that the student will start, and he may get some benefit. And because he does get some benefit, he says, this is good stuff. But now that I've gotten the benefit, I'll quit. They don't actually have that as a as a as a thought or a plan. It just comes up to, well, I feel OK now, so I'm not going to practice. Because it was always from that it's out in the future that you should or ought to do meditation. Right. That's the whole point and that we do that in everything. I mean, how many kids at the age of six, when school opens, very few kids are eager. Well, actually all of the kids are eager the first day, but after the grind, now they go to school because they have to, because they're told to, because they're supposed to, right? And we lose that uh, joy in school and sometimes we never recover we all I, even to the point of a phd only because we're supposed to it's the goal we gotta do it and so in meditation it comes like in fits and starts like that and that's not actually what the buddha uh recommended at all 
that in fact, um, there is a little bit of effort to it. It depends. All right. Let us say that the effort that had the really hard effort or the um, the effort that is a struggle ha is an effort that comes because there's no confidence. In other words, we hear about meditation, but we've got no experience. We've got no nothing for it. All right. All we've got is you ought to do it. And so practicing that way, um, the heart's literally not in it. You're not in it. You're doing it because you're you're supposed to, and you're kind of expecting some benefit out of it. And that's not only the way that that it's practiced, but that's the way that it's taught. One of the things that I noticed uh, when I was with Gawanka was is that he used the word work, and he did it in a particular way. You must work work but most of his audience were um indians who had been let us say deprived of being able to do anything for much of their lives due to the circumstances that they were in and not only that but many of the students that would come into the retreats in those early days would bring all kinds of puja equipment in there they would bring little bells or uh what what we would in the West think of as castanets. They would bring uh, malas and beads and all kinds of stuff in there because they were intending to practice uh, something that they had learned at a Hindu temple. And and uh, a lot of that has to do then with, with puja or um, let us say supplications or uh, worship in some way or another to where uh, Goenka was saying, no, you've got to actually practice. You've got to work at this, all right? But the work comes from the point of not getting any benefit out of it. And so the first thing that we need to do with our practice is start getting benefit out of it immediately, because if we start getting benefit out of it, then we can see that uh, it has that value. And so we start putting our heart in it, put some skin in the game. We can see the benefit of it immediately if we're practicing correctly. And so then we get the benefit immediately, right? All right. So now that I've got the benefit, I'm going to quit practice. We don't say that right out big uh, and, and put it on our new uh, cal Google Calendar. But we just kind of, when it's time, we just kind of let it slide. Well, I'm I'm okay. And then there's the other uh, part of it to where we do it because we're supposed to do it and we don't get any value out of it. And so we quit kind of out of frustration. Now, everybody goes through this. Everybody gets started in fits and starts. One of the reasons why um, 10 day meditation retreats are hyped up is to try uh, to sell the student on the fact that if you come for 10 days and practice it for 10 days, then when you go home, it'll be a whole lot easier to practice. To where, in fact, my experience with those 10 day retreats that the students can't wait to get out of that class and they don't want to have anything to do with meditation for a while. 
because they're not getting the good benefit out of it that they uh, could be getting. Eric. It's kind of a mixture. Pardon? It's kind of a mixture. Yes, that's getting back to it. It is a mixture. It is a mixed bag. It is up and it is down. This is, in fact, the samsara that Buddha talks about. It's the cycle. It's the wheels that we get into. Sometimes we feel like a nut. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're getting benefit out of practice, and sometimes we quit. Sometimes we're not getting benefit out of practice, and then we quit. The question is, is can we come back to the point of remembering how valuable it is and then continue to practice because it's always not how long you put in it's what are you doing right now and right now you have an opportunity to gladden the mind and take a deep breath and be relaxed even when you're just listening to somebody talk <clears throat> so the question is all about remembering can we remember to look at what we're thinking to change that way of thinking, to come out of our ordinary way and think of, of a happy thought. And the problem with that is, is that most of us find that difficult when we're out in the world. It's really hard to have a happy thought when you're uh, being confronted by a cop or an angry person or uh, just ordinary people giving you ordinary feelings. And we buy into that. So this is the whole point about why seclusion is so valuable. Not seclusion in the sense of coming to a, uh, a remote island. That's optional. But actually, wherever you are, you can close the door or close your eyes and you are in seclusion right then. So long as you're nowhere around other people, you're not within sight or hearing of someone else. You can consider that seclusion enough. And so every time that you're, uh, you rec remember, oh, I am, in fact, while I am in seclusion, my sila is perfect, at least physical sila. I'm not harming anybody, not killing anybody, not raping anybody, not uh, stealing anything, not gossiping, not lying. I'm just sitting here. Okay, so that's the basic foundation is the, the sila, but it's not a long-term sila. It's the sila that we have right now. Is my sila good enough right now for me now to go into um, the practice of repetition? The practice of repetition over and over and over again. Now, um, in that regard, it's good to actually define the word concentration. Because concentration uh, has been taught in the sense of not uh, <clears throat> not just focusing on something, but focusing on it as if you're trying to grab it or trying to push yourself into it. Uh, an example of that is here with my hand, and I can be paying attention to that uh, hand there with the index finger. But most people think of concentration, oh, well, the finger will wander away, so I've got to concentrate. And the way to do that is by pushing really hard, okay? And we show that pushing is what we see as concentration. 
But a better way of understanding the word is repetition, to do it over and over and over again. But it can be done over and over and over again easily, not with this push or with this hard concentration that Westerners have put put into it. That in fact, if a child is sitting at her desk doing her homework, but she's daydreaming or looking at it confused or whatever, and mom or the teacher comes up and says, concentrate on the homework. What is the child going to do? She's going to furrow her brows and look like that she's working really hard. And she does, and we, we pick up that ignorance when we're children, that we kind of think that we're supposed to concentrate, which means we're supposed to uh, knit our brow and uh, tighten up and at least look to the teacher like we're in like we're doing the work. And very few kids then learn to enjoy their homework. We're not supposed to enjoy it. In fact, we're supposed to just do it right. Mm -hmm. And so we wind up in our whole lives. It doesn't matter uh, then about whether you enjoy your work or your life is that you do it. You do what you're told to do. And that if you're not very good at it, then you have to try and try, which is now that kind of concentration again. Right? So concentration in this regard is what losers do because they expect <laughs> to fail. And so they work really hard at it to prove to themselves that look how hard I try and they're working really hard at it to prove to the others look how hard I try, but I'm still expecting failure. And so this is the kind of mentality that people bring because of their educational system. They bring that into the meditation hall. They bring that into their meditation of that uh, that hard work. Hello, Robert, you just joined. Hi guys. Happy Friday. Yeah, we've got uh, uh, three guests today on our call. Two of them are staying uh, silent there. So. Oh, great. Wonderful. Uh-huh. Uh, hi, Alexander. Welcome back. So what we were getting at then is, is that it has a lot to do with attitude the attitude of how we're going into the practice and that that attitude is not fixed unless it's ignorant. In other words, if we have an attitude and we don't know what that attitude is, then we don't have much of a chance to fix it. We just waltz in there and do what we're told to do and strain and work and prove that this is hard work and then we don't like it so much and then we quit meditation, right? That happens that in fact, I've got a friend, his name is Thad, and uh, Thad, uh, I don't know if he's still doing it or not, I haven't contacted him in a year or two, but for many, many years, he was actually uh, one of the primary staff members of the retreat center, the Goenka Retreat Center in California. He was the logistics manager, and he was also doing a lot of construction, and he was in charge of the computers, and all the logistics around the uh, uh, the thing. And one of the things that he found out 
was when people are putting in an application uh, to do the retreat, one of the questions is, have you done a retreat before and when? And the statistics shows that it's seven years between retreats. Somebody will go and do a retreat, and then it's seven years before they do another retreat. Now, it seems to me that if they were getting great benefit out of those retreats, they'd be going to them next time it was possible, rather than waiting until another crisis in their life and thinking, well, maybe I'll go try it again. And so this is all to do with the incorrect practice. If we get started correctly, then it's much easier to develop this this practice. And that is that we have to get benefit out of the practice immediately. And this is also what the Buddha taught. There are so many suttas that point directly to this. Um, one of them I'm thinking about is Sutta number 111, which is where the Buddha is praising Sariputta's work. This is what we think of as one of the very early, early suttas, because this is when Sariputta's was being introduced as um, uh, a Dhamma teacher, I think, would be the way of looking at it. So this is very early in the, uh, uh, the Buddha's career. And what he said was, is that uh, this process that Sariputta went through took only two weeks, a fortnight, which would be in their measurement, the time between the, uh, a new moon and a full moon. And that's all it took, Sariputta. Now, the first thing that we began to think about was is that, yeah, but Sariputta already had a practice going someplace else. He was already skilled at this. He was already some sort of monk doing something. And we also know that the Buddha did a lot of jhana practice before he became enlightened. Okay, so we can put that kind of thing in there. But the point is, is that um, for Sariputta to do this in two weeks, the sutta start, or this part of the passage of the sutta starts out with being completely free from unwholesome thoughts and unwholesome states, Sariputta enters into the first jhana. So we're talking about two weeks after he's into the first jhana. That's, so it's not a big deal because people go in and out of first jhana on a regular basis and they don't know it anyway. And so the practice that the Buddha is talking about is not a long, drawn-out, year's practice when it's done correctly. And yet that seems to be what the idea is, is that it's a long, drawn-out practice. And the reason that it winds up being, for many people, a long, drawn-out practice is because they don't remember just in the nick of time when they need to remember, because they're not developing the skill of sati. That sati is the number one skill to be developed. But we develop the, the sati correctly exactly the way that dogs are trained. In other words, when a dog does something correctly, professional trainers will give the dog a gift. They reward the dog immediately. 
if they're cheating, they give the dog a treat. But after the dog is underway, just the petting of the dog and the praising of the dog is enough. Okay, so what we need to do is to treat ourselves like dogs. If you're going to train yourself, you have to be able to reward yourself with every good thing you do. Take the benefit. Gain your reward. Well, in our society, we have been taught, literally taught over and over and over again, delayed gratification. An example of that is learning your ABCs. Mommy, why do I have to learn the ABCs? Mommy will never say, well, I really like the ABCs. This is really fun. I really enjoy being able to get them in order and know which order the alphabet is in. I really enjoy the various ways of doing the letter N and J. No, we don't tell our kids how much fun reading is and the letters of the alphabet can be. We say, oh, you've got to learn your ABCs so that you can learn to read. Well, why do I want to learn to read, Mommy? So you can get out of the first grade and get into the second grade. Well, why should I want to go to the second grade so you can get out of the second grade and go to the third grade? You see where that and it's always delayed gratification, delayed gratification. Even in Christianity, heaven is a delayed gratification. You can't get any money out of that bank until you're dead. <laughs> I see a lot of that, too. I'm a music teacher. You know, I teach piano and guitar. And uh, nice. I, I'm pretty laid back with kids. Like, you know, you should practice because you enjoy it. Play the songs you enjoy. You know, don't time it. Play a few times a day. And some parents, I actually, especially if they have been piano players themselves, I have to train them out of this, like, prescribed time per day mindset. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, the kids love it. They do really well with it. Um, yeah, if you can get a child to love to play the piano, they yeah. will become able to play the piano. If you tell a child you've got to learn to play the piano, he won't really ever be very good at it. My, my mom did the funniest thing, too. We had a piano in our house. My older brother left his piano in our house, and it was just like a toy in the corner. And I just played on it every time I waited for my food in the microwave. And, you know, that went somewhere pretty good after 20 years. I just had fun with it. The piano was never forced on me, but it was always a, you know, even now when I think of the piano, it's very positive in that way. Excellent. Excellent. So you understand what we're getting at here. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's wild to see, you know, you have a right view and right effort towards music and teaching music, but the meditation right view is like funky. You know, yeah, the meditation and, right view is like discipline, retreats, you know, more sitting. <laughs> well, you were lucky to have that one small area of music that you could do correctly because all the reading and the math and the history and everything else that they wanted you to do, sports, whatever. Yep. The kids who are not good at sports is the ones who don't think that they're good at sports and they don't like it. I have yeah. a, a question regarding that. Um since practicing this method, I noticed that I stopped having, like, aiming for enlightenment. I just want to chill right now. Should we, or at my stage, should I kind of have enlightenment on site, or should I just keep chilling? Enlightenment is something that you can experience right here, right now. If it's a goal, 
then it is mm. um, not here right now. And you're getting no benefit out of enlightenment, that it's a goal. But in fact, the way that the Buddha would express it is, is that enlightenment you want and do not have. Exactly. It's something you want and do not have, right? Which puts you in the state of dukkha. That wanting things that we don't have is a state of dukkha. But there, there can be... Or I'm thinking that there can be a slight difference between wanting to get enlightened and aiming for it. And just to correct it a bit, I'm not uh, thinking about rapture or <laughs> anything overwhelming like that, but just, uh, yeah, feeling satisfied all the time. And well, I don't I, work with all the time. We just went through okay, the okay, whole yeah. point about <laughs> cycles. Feeling... Okay. Uh, satisfied at all the right nows. Well, we need to practice <laughs> being uh, satisfied. We need to practice it because you've been practicing being dissatisfied, putting off your um, rewards, delayed gratification. You've been practicing that to the point that you're quite excellent at delayed gratification. So now we're going to change that and start taking our gratification right here, right now. Take your gratification. Take your reward. Have the feeling that the job that needed to be done has been done. And you can relax. That you're satisfied with the job well done. Um, As opposed to having a job to do of getting enlightened. That's work. Yeah, I just want to compliment my my question. I don't think I have, uh, I can state it clearly. But what's the difference between that and the what you mean when you say practicing like your hair hair is on fire? And also, uh, I asked that because uh, recently I was dealing with uh, COVID and I had a couple of rough days. And I'm used to uh, normally practicing, like you say, 10, 15 minutes uh, many times a day. But since I wasn't doing anything when I was sick, uh, the practice and non-practice kind of melded together. And I don't, I'm not sure if I practiced correctly because I, I think like uh, I didn't suffer too much. But now that I'm healthy, uh, I can appreciate the practice more. Well, let's start off with the statement that you made of practicing like your hair is on fire. That's exactly the way that I practiced. Looks like Todd's done that too. All right. But it's got a point to it that most people don't understand. That in fact, most people understand that phrase of practicing like your hair is on fire, and then they make it a rule. Oh my goodness, I mean, I must have to practice, right? But there is another way of looking at it, and that is is that um, there, there is something really, really valuable that's in great danger of being lost. That's what the hair on fire is all about. You're in grave danger of losing something. Is that is that what that looks like? Doesn't that give you the picture, Eric? Yeah. 
Um, Practicing like your hair is on fire means that you're in immediate danger of losing something. Pardon? Is that a question or a statement? Well, I'm asking you to agree yes or no. Um, no, I didn't associate it exactly with those words. All right, well, what does that mean? If I feel in danger, from? I don't feel safe and secure. Well, what is the point about a hair on fire? Hair on fire sounds pretty dangerous. Yeah. Whenever I heard that in the past <laughs> from teachers, it was this, uh, this call to rally, you know, superhuman resilience in, in your 16-hour meditation sessions. That was the... Oh. Right, 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 right. Uh, which, yeah. which is basically what I'm talking about is, is that something yeah. is dangerous and I'd better do something about it right away. Yeah. Okay, so let's put that uh, point in context. And the context is, is that here we are alive. We're in uh, a state of consciousness such that we know that we're alive. And every one of us clings to being alive. We cling to it instinctually. instinctively. The instinct is the self-preservation instinct. In other words, there's a mechanism that's built in, not just to humans, but into all life forms. Any life wants to sustain life. And yet every life ends prematurely. Even those who die at the age of 120 or the world's record 137 is always a premature death. One of the jokes in my family, my, my grandmother had three sisters and her mother and her grandmother and uh, my grandmother all lived over 100 years. There was only one out of those four sisters that didn't make it and she died at the age of 97 and they called it infant mortality in our family. <laughs> All right, so that's the point here is, is that ere how long we live, we're not going to want to die if we are operating under that <clears throat> self-preservation instinct. If we're acting instinctively, then anything that puts us in danger of death um, will bring up fear. So, one of the ways of looking at it then is, is that your life is actually in a peril. There are some things that you can do without and live many, many years. I mean, I can really, really live a long, long time and never visit Ukraine. I can live a long, long time and never visit the brothel. I can go a long, long time and never visit the bar. I can go for a month or more without visiting a restaurant or eating. But how long can I live without water? Two, three days? How long can I live without breathing? That's where we're coming down to. That this whole idea of hair on fire has a, has a lot to do with the breathing a connection with the breathing, because if you don't take this next breath, you're in a worse condition than your hair being on fire. This next breath yeah. is vital. It's important. In fact, 
staying alive is the only thing that we do have that each one of us thinks important. Everything else is not important. You can lose all your money, you can lose all your friends, but you're still alive. Which would you rather have? Would you rather, uh, uh, this way, would you rather lose all your friends, all your money, and all your possessions and still be alive? Or would you prefer to be dead with lots of friends and lots of money and a will? Depends. I'm going to Christian <laughs> heaven. Okay, so staying alive winds up being quite important. And yes, quite. Most of us live our lives as if right now being alive is not important. Something in the past was important. Something in the future is important. So the quality of the hair being on fire is an immediate right here, right now. Something is it needs to be done or something's missing. And this is why we put the breath in it with Anapanasati. Is, is that we use the breathing and the mind together to put it into a really good state. If we're not breathing correctly, in fact, if we're in a state of fear, fear is a state of shutdown. That in fact, you've heard of it as fight or flight, but in the, every time the fight or flight happens, there's the first thing that happens is freeze. We freeze first. And then all that adrenaline starts pumping in the system so that we're either going to use that adrenaline to run away or we're going to use that adrenaline to fight. But in our society, that doesn't work. If the if the boss comes down the hall and you see him coming, we will normally react to him as if it were a gorilla or a wild boar bearing down upon us because we're still out in the woods, right? Except with a boar or a bear, we can either fight or flight. With the boss, we can't do either one of those things. And here we are sitting in our chair, all pumped up with all of this adrenaline, <laughs> with no place to go and nothing to do because we're in a state of fear. And so that, that's the freeze. We freeze with that. And so uh, when we get out of those kind of situations and get into seclusion, then we can begin to work with the breathing so that we can remember that the breath itself is life-giving. We really need this air, that there is a deep interconnection between the environment and the individual through the air. You can feel the touch of the skin, the air on the skin. You can feel the touch of the cloth. You can feel all kinds of things in the body. You can also feel the inside by examining it. You can feel what it's like on the inside when that air comes in. So you can actually examine the airflow from the inside and the outside, paying attention to it, making sure that the air that we're getting is a very wholesome breath. It's exhilarating, life-giving. We feel vibrantly alive, full of life itself. This is what we're practicing on and by using the breathing and also by using the mind with the gladdening of the mind, we're putting this combination in there to be to get the reward. Remember, I was talking about the dog getting his reward for doing it. OK, so every time that Sati comes up, we should be rewarded with feeling really good. Every time I remember to feel really good, I can feel really good. I do feel really good. 
All I have to do is remember and give myself that reward. I can feel good. I can change the thoughts that I'm having. This is the part of meditation that is missing in the Western interpretation of it because we I miss- totally agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're missing out on um, that quality of gaining benefit from your practice right here, right now. Yes, Eric. Thank you for the clarification. I think I made a. Uh, a little readjustment there because uh, I let me see if I'm on the right track. Is it more fine to practice thinking the way you're stating it that because we have the desire and we're programmed to desire to keep on living, uh, meditating then is uh, realizing that the most direct way to keep on living is taking this next breath. And by taking a, a really nice breath, we're accomplishing that goal. Right, but there's and a little think, more to it. And that is, okay. is that if we are going to stay alive, if we are going to take this next breath, then why don't we make the most of it? Why is it that okay. we say, well, I'm not good enough now to really enjoy this breath because I'm not enlightened. Okay, then I have a subtle doubt there because I think I was like the support, logical support of the practice for this last couple of days had been making the most of it, but like in an hedonistic way, like uh, feeling the way that I would like to feel. But I think that we should always have the those two elements right uh, present that it's not just a hedonistic desire to feel good it's also uh, wait a following minute our... wait a minute wait a minute you snuck okay. a dirty word in there <laughs> okay sorry he hedonism as correctly defined has to do with uh, freedom to go do wrong things and get away with it. Hedonism is actually, now I'm giving a kind of a special way of phrasing it, but hedonism has to do with enjoying the senses in the sense of physical object. So you could have drugs and alcohol and, and certain kinds of music and sexuality and all of that kind of stuff is hedonism. I didn't mean it in that way. Though. Well, then let's not use the word hedonism then. Maximizing okay. pleasure, uh, utilitarianism. Pardon? I, I meant it in, in the sense of maximizing pleasure, like uh, an utilitarian view. Well, um, there are certain elements in our society that are against pleasure. Most Buddhists think that the Buddha was against pleasure. Or in fact, in one of the suttas, number 139, by the way, where the Buddha actually talks about it in the sense that he will gain pleasure wherever it may be found. He will take pleasure wherever it may be found. But some places are more wholesome than others. All right. 
So the um, the point is, is that why does our society want to put down pleasure? Why is that kind of a no-no? Especially when in Buddhism, when uh, the word that's translated is sensual pleasure, which means the senses from objects, the senses of alcohol and all of that kind of stuff. And that we also associate it with sexuality, especially in the West. That's one of the things that I've come to understand, uh, like, for instance, the Thai culture and other Asian cultures. Sex is not nearly as, as important in general as it is in the West. The Thai women, for instance, dress modestly. That's just part of their culture to where sex is advertised nonstop in the West. Right. And so we can't tell the difference between sensuality and sexuality. We're ignorant like that. But the kind of point that we're making here is, is that there is a kind of pleasure. In fact, now I'm quoting Sutta number 36 when the Buddha says, why was I afraid of the pleasures of the first jhana? Why was I afraid of that? Because I was associating the pleasures of the first jhana with sensual pleasures, pleasures of what the carnal is a word that they Christians will use. Okay. So uh, please understand that uh, that kind of pleasure is harmful, is harmful to the people, uh, to the family, to in many different ways, it's, it's harmful. But the pleasures of the first jhana are not harmful at all. Why would the Buddha be afraid of it? It was because in the, before he was enlightened, he bought into uh, all of the stuff that uh, our culture teaches. And the answer to that is, no, you can have pleasure. That in fact, you're almost asking the question of, well, um, why don't we just train the dog without giving the dog any treats? The answer to that is dogs don't train very well if they don't see any benefit or any reward. And neither does, does humans. We always are looking for some sort of benefit, some sort of uh, reward. Yes, Bo. Uh, there's something interesting here because, uh, you know, over the last year, I've, I've thought of this idea of um, I don't have a great term for it, but it's like it's like I've been calling it pseudo discipline, you know, so a, a music student. Uh, this is where I've seen it unfold a lot, but also in meditation, music student thinks, well, I'm not getting pleasure from the practice. My practice sucks, but I'm gaining the skill of discipline while I force myself to do it. And mm -hmm. I've seen people push that argument and it, it just sounds silly because, you know, the best musicians I've actually ever met, they have a blast when they're practicing. Like they're just they're just messing around. Like there's no there's no schedule. There's no checklist. Like they're just they're just having a, a good time and exploring things and, and, you know, they're really into it intrinsically. But this the pseudo discipline idea that people offer up as this benefit that you're getting from withstanding the, the pain. Uh, it, it's very interesting to see. It's like wired into the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, it is yeah. like it, it has to do if we go back a little bit to that issue of working hard and trying and concentrating 
is, is that if we work hard and concentrate and fail at it, then something like grace or mercy will come falling out of the sky and then we'll, you know, we'll be forgiven for our bad practice and get rewarded and into heaven anyway. Okay, that's that's a very, very heavy Christian teaching that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You are broken merchandise. There is this original sin. Get over it. You're stuck. But if you pretend and work really hard like you're not stuck, then you'll be given the uh, the gold star of saying, okay, you're not stuck, but you get that out of grace. But that gold star only covers over the fact that you are inherently stopped. You're broken. Original sin. Okay, that's what Christianity teaches, that you need a Jesus because you need him to forgive you for being bad but you have to prove that you're good by working hard at being bad funny like that so this whole idea then of pleasure of coming out of the unwholesome thoughts and coming into wholesome thoughts of gladdening the mind brightening the mind giving ourselves uh happy thoughts while we're working with the breath and actually enjoying the reality of the moment here's something very interesting and that is is that almost all of the problems that people have in their lives about 99 percent of them never actually happen 99 percent of the problems that you'll have in your whole life don't actually happen but we think about them anyway all the things that could go wrong. Any, you know, it's like we live nonstop in Murphy's Law. Anything that could go wrong will go wrong, and there it is. <laughs> I proved it. <laughs> it just went wrong again. And so uh, we have this kind of a mentality of being a failure. This mentality also can be considered um, the victim's position. But if we, in fact, practice correctly with with right effort and I'd like to define right effort as part of the Eightfold Noble Path now as the least amount of effort that it takes to actually get the job done. And yet most of the people will practice putting way too much effort and not get the job done. So don't work hard, work easy just enough to get the job done. And so in that regard, what we mean by getting the job done is getting the mind right now in a really good state. And yet people will go to Mahasi retreats or uh, retreats or whatever, sitting for an hour, hoping for them to feel good. And all they're doing is wishing for the bell to ring. They want this over. It's not good enough right now. And the whole point of going off into retreat is to get yourself into a really good state, but very few of us do that. That in fact, the teachers don't even set it up for the students to get really good benefit immediately. You've got to go for, in, for instance, with the Goenka method, you've got to do three days of Anapane before you do the scanning. 
And then when you get the scanning good after four or five days of that, now you're going to do strong determination sittings. Right. That's going back to what Bo was saying about um, uh, uh, enduring. You use that word endurance. Okay. Here's something that the Buddha says about endurance that some asava, some fetters, are to be eliminated by endurance. But. He has already talked about other things like how uh, uh, to uh, abandon some uh, asava or some um, uh, cankers or some outflows by using. And here he's talking about most specifically clothing and shelter is used to protect us against the cold, against the heat against mosquitoes and gadflies and other things okay so we use the requisites of the uh, of the clothing and um, our housing to avoid having to put up with creepy crawlers and windbags and hot air and things like that that in fact um, we we don't <laughs> we can use uh, our clothing and housing to avoid extremes in temperature of hot and cold. Then later he talks about enduring. And guess what that list is? It's the same list. That even though we do have housing, that's not always going to protect us from the cold. So we have to also have to learn to endure the cold. But part of the learning of the enduring of the cold is also the use of the requisites to avoid the cold. So these things work together. So um, and also that that point that I made before the joke was about the hot air is because that's in the the, the phrase about enduring because we have to endure other people's trash talk. Okay, insults and anger and all of that kind of stuff, we can learn to endure it. But we cannot learn to endure it while we're experiencing doing doing. In other words, the time to learn uh, to not be angry is not the time when someone is inviting you to be angry. And there's many ways that they can invite you to be angry. They can insult you. They can slap your face. They can take your money. You, I mean, there's just 10,000 ways that people can try to upset you. Guess what? When we're sitting in seclusion, there's also 10,000 different ways that we can upset ourselves. And so this is the place where we work with the idea of the enduring. But we're here. We're going to endure it by throwing it out. Just get rid of it. Let's come back to a state of pleasure. If we cannot, while we're sitting, giving ourselves a bunch of trash talk and not being able to throw that out and get the mind into a really good state, then how are we going to be able to do that when someone else comes and starts insulting and giving us trash talk? How are we going to return that with pleasure? The answer is we need to practice. We need to practice this enduring. And so we can, 
it's actually very much like you go to a gym, a new guy who's going to a gym. Almost every one of us, the new teenager in the gym, he automatically goes to the heaviest set of weights in, in the in the room. I don't know why we do that. I've seen even videos of guys who have gotten on the bench press and they're pressing and all of a sudden they can't move this set of barbells off their chest. They can't do it. It's too, he's going to kill him. He's within two minutes of, or 10 seconds of dying. And the guy who's video taping him thinks that this is hilarious and he's not going to help this guy get that heavy weight off of him. <laughs> and finally, he figures out that he can use balance to move it so that the, ver uh, the weights will uh, fall off uh, this way. But here's the point about that. When, if we're going to uh, be of any value in a gym, we have to start off at the level that we're at and not overdo it, not overwork. If you work out too much the first time that you go, you're going to be sore for three or four days and you're going to hate that soreness. So we have to work just enough, pump just enough iron to feel good about it. Without without exhausting or putting too much out. So this also is the way that we're going to practice anapanasati, is practice just enough to feel really good, to feel really pumped up, without making the mind sore by sitting too long, making it tired. And so this is the reason, one of the reasons why I recommend instead of practicing one time a day for either 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, or an hour or two hours. It's better to practice many times during the day, but have a schedule, intentional schedule. Two of the times that we could schedule was when we first wake up. Don't get out of bed, get into a good state and mentally. When we go to bed at night, after we get into bed, instead of going to sleep, we can go into bliss. Just by practicing, oh, gosh, there's no place to go and nothing to do. And I've got myself for the next eight hours and I don't have to do anything. So just to lay here and enjoy. But most people, when they're in bed at night, they're burning and churning about all the stuff that needs to be done tomorrow and all of the pressure that they're under. All right. So what can we do then to remember that I don't have to pressurize myself? Not right now. Let's take a few moments and come out of out from under the pressure and give ourselves some joy. Let's reward the puppy inside. Let's give the doggy a treat. And that treat is the treat of feeling good. So the way that we do that is by literally talking ourselves into feeling good. So we use the body and the, uh, the, the mind together to develop sati. You cannot watch your breath and take a long, deep breath unless you're thinking about watching your breath and taking a long, deep breath. They're tied together. That the body will breathe by itself, but it generally breathes at a minimum. It's very conservative. And because of fear, it's overly conservative and we tend to shut down. And so taking a long, deep breath is very vital, very um, energizing.
as well as developing the skills of sati and beginning to develop the skill of being in the here now. Because when you're watching the body breathing, you're watching the body breathing right now. You're not watching last year's breath or next month's breath. You're watching this one right here, right now. So that quality of using the breath then has the quality of bringing us right into the here now. Also with the breath, we're going to be watching the body and inspecting the body to get used to all the bodily sensory input, including noticing where any stress or tensions or anything else is so that we can relax the body. So we relax the body, we breathe well, and we're having happy thoughts. And by doing so, we then to start to develop our feelings that we can feel the way that we want to feel. But most of the time we feel the way that we're in the habit of feeling. Whatever way that I have been feeling, that's the way that I feel because I'm not mindful enough to be willing to give myself a treat so that I have feel better. Yes, Bo. This is another thing I I didn't notice, you know, a few years ago, I think four years ago when I saw your your work was how passive people are in meditation in terms of not doing anything. Like they're like you seem to advocate actually taking control of the breath and making it more relaxing if you want to Make Put it some more skin alive. in the game. That's yeah, right. rather than just, just passively watching it and say, I'll just take whatever is happening. But same with the mind, you know, maybe the feelings mm -hmm. can't be affected as fast as I, I want them to, but I can I can make efforts to changing the feelings. And sometimes it happens pretty rapidly, but it seems to have just been on a upward trajectory. You can do something about it. It's not just like a waiting for, you know, the grace to kick in. Yes. Yeah. Precisely so. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's so if we are not practicing correctly, then all we're doing is noting. They, the student says, well, note what? And the teacher will say, well, note whatever's there. Okay, but that's yeah. not right noting. Right noting is to note it with discrimination. Hey, is that thought really beneficial and satisfactory right now? And if it's a thought about the past or thought about the future, pretty much it's not. And so we can throw that thought out and start having thoughts about, wow, right now everything is okay. Remember I said that 99% of all the problems never really happen? More than that, more than 99% of all the things that we're afraid of never happen. And in fact, that's what a problem is, is because we're afraid. Well, almost all of our fear is about fears that happened when we were children, fears of the deep past. If I get busted by the cops for years and years and years, I'll be afraid of cops. And yet every cop that I see, if I'm afraid of him, I'll interact with him that way and he will give me reasons to be afraid of him. And so that gives um, all of that stuff moves around like that. If we are able to change, that's what right effort is about. Not just noting whatever is there. That in fact, even in the Mahasi method in the 16 stages of insight, if you keep noting and keep seeing it, 
you're going to become very afraid. You're going to have a lot of fear. You're going to have a lot of misery, a lot of disgust, a lot of problems. So much so that you get a grand, huge desire to get out of it. I've actually now gone fear from step six, fear, misery, disgust, despair, and a strong longing to get out. Okay. Which the fear would make sense if you don't feel like you can do anything to mm -hmm. influence exactly. it. If you feel like you just got to take it, then right. it's going to get even more fearful. And then that the next step in that is now the strong determination to make a change and to get out of it. And then step 12 is the Eightfold Noble Path. Guess what? We dispense with the first whole group of that stuff and say we're going to start right away with the Eightfold Noble Path. And the Eightfold Noble Path has to do with Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, right here, right now, to get it out right now. Don't sit and wallow in our misery or our fear or our disgust. That, in fact, the fear is a, is the common uh, issue because it's always to do with something might happen or something did happen. Very rarely do we have fear about what's happening right now. How many times have you actually had someone pointing uh, a loaded cocked gun right in your face? Never happened to me. Almost everything that's ever happened to me that I was afraid of never actually happened. So that means then that it's a mental state. If we get ourselves into a state of fear by thinking fearful thoughts, then the way to come out of fear is by thinking thoughts that there is nothing to be afraid of. So these would be the kind of wholesome thoughts that we would have right from the very beginning. So look around you guys. Anybody got any alligators on your floor? Anybody got any pythons climbing up your leg? How about rattlesnakes? Any rattlesnakes? Anybody got any of that kind of stuff? How about uh, Russian mafia? You got any SWAT teams coming? You got a boogeyman in your closet? No, we don't have any of that. So we can start looking at it. In fact, this is the point of uh, that the Buddha is making about sunyata. That things are really empty. They really are empty. If we would see that they're empty, that that closet is empty. There is no boogeyman in the closet. Which means there is nothing right now to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of. So we need to tell ourselves that because we're all constantly in a state of fear. So one of the, of the wholesome thoughts that I would recommend that you have is everything is okay. Everything is safe. There's no problems right now. No worries, no alligators, no <laughs> mother-in-laws yelling, no IRS agents, no Donald Trumps, no Putins. They're not here. But if I start thinking about any of that stuff, fear will come up. I need to tell myself, not now. They're not here. Let's feel safe. And so you begin to actually feel safe because you're recognizing that you are safe. The reality is, is that you're safe. That's the beautiful part. We're talking about reality here. The reality is, is that right now you're safe. So why do we have fear? It's because we've, again, 
talked ourselves into it from old fears. Eric, yeah. Uh, Robert, do you not have a question anymore? So you raised um, your hand. No, no, it was stupid. Okay. <laughs> so, Eric, do yeah. you have a question? Yeah, yeah. Um, coming back to what I uh, asked about not being sure if I was practicing correctly when I was having COVID, now that you were saying um, that about the fear, the last time I experienced a little bit of panic was when um, I miscalculated my, my dose of a good can of butter I prepared. And I just started to panic a bit in the hammock. I was just chilling alone here. And um, my question is, when we are feeling a bit overwhelmed by, by a strong emotion, let's say fear, um, and calmness is not uh, reachable at that point, then Certainly how Certainly it we... is. It absolutely is. Mm, I it didn't feel like that for me. I used all the tools available. Um, no, you didn't. No, I you didn't. did not. Okay, let me. At you least just worked it, really let, hard at it. You thought you did. So you're. I mean, remember we were talking about trying hard. Yeah, you were using all the available skills and tools so that you would lose. Mm. When you when you expect to lose, you do lose. When you expect um, to win, this is, the, in fact, this is the, the, the topic that we're talking about. I'm getting around to it. We've been uh, dwelling on right um, effort. But if you practice right effort and start doing this correctly, you will begin to change your attitude from being a failure into being a winner. You can do this. But at the same time, uh, you also say no, that. No, you mean before. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before you said that, um, you don't practice for the extreme situations at that moment, but you have to have like a base practice to be able to deal with uh, stronger situations or emotions. Right. right. You want to practice okay. with uh, uh, with one half gram or one half kilo of <laughs> uh, dumbbells. <laughs> before you start with five kilo dumbbells. Okay. It's best to and start then, with one or two pounds rather than 10 pounds. And then you also said that um, the mind has a, a leaning, right? So where the mind leans, that's where it's going to fall. Mm -hmm. so, so at that time, let's say- if you lean in the direction of this is hard, it will be. And if you lean in the direction of, hey, I'm at, I got this wired, this is easy. Then it will be. Okay, let me just finish my question. And if you say that I wasn't practicing correctly and I should have uh, blah, 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 then I'll stay with that. But what I wanted to say that at that moment, it feels like I was already the tree falling into fear. And I didn't consciously lean into that. I just realized that all the uh, thoughts that were popping up at that time were related to, to panic. And um, it's good. It, it wasn't excellent. A That's the whole. All right, excellent. You're beginning to do it. That in fact, you put yourself into state of panic by having thoughts about panic. 
Yeah, but I... You literally talked yourself into a panic. But I didn't mean to. Well, <laughs> that's not the point. You do not get any benefit. You do not get any grace. You do not get any mercy. Sorry. I am not playing God right now. I'm not going to do it. You do not get any grace or mercy for working hard. I wasn't looking for that. My question was that when I'm in that situation, how can I uh, conceptualize what what's the best state that I can aim for and how can I like, is there a baseline or do we just go moment by moment and do the, the best that we can? Well, um, let's go back to the word conceptualization that you used. That in fact, that's not uh, exactly what we're practicing. That in fact, we, uh, we're actually practicing coming out of our conceptualizations that you were conceptualizing things that brought on the anxiety or the fear. That in fact, fear and anxiety are just two words for different qualities of the fact that we've got new chemicals in the body that are affecting the way that the body operates, normally adrenaline, cortisone, that kind of stuff. So anxiety, we talk ourselves into it with the thoughts that we're having. So now we're going to change the kind of thoughts, but we're going to change the thoughts from uh, conceptualized thoughts about the past and the future into examination kind of thoughts about what the present is happening right here, right now. Okay, there's many different kinds of thoughts, and one of the kind of thoughts is discursive thought. And discursive thought, or verbaliz verbalization kind of thoughts, uh, we can call uh, conceptualizations. They can also have visual imagery, but it always has to do with um, something that's not here. We're conceiving, we're, we're manufacturing this present moment using stuff that came out of our past. What we need to do is have a different kind of thinking. An example of a different kind of thinking is, um, let us, uh, everybody raise your right hand and look at it. Just look at your hand. Look at the fingers and, uh, and I'll just look around. While you're looking at your hand, you're not thinking, you're using uh, discursively. You're actually using observational kind of thinking. Okay, the actual experience of what we see the actual experience of hearing, the actual experience of feeling the body coming into the present moment and our mind moments are spent now in a kind of thinking that is real. <laughs> Hang on a second. Kitty? Yeah, thank you. So, um, when we have these conceptualized thoughts, we do it the same way that we've always been doing it. We're going to change the kind of thoughts that we have into the kind of thoughts about what's happening right here, right now. In other words, we're going to observe. If there's an itch, observe the itch. 
not just hate the itch. Then in fact, what we normally do is when there's an itch, we notice it just a little bit with the basic part of our brain. We start to scratch it, but we never change the actual thoughts. If you actually change the uh, the thoughts that we have to redirect them to that itch and start paying really close attention to that itch as a sensory piece of input, then we're not thinking conceptually anymore. Come to understand that there are two kinds of thought in this regard. One of them is discursive thought that has to do with conceptualizations and it has to do with putting things together from the past. And then there is the kind of thinking that is observational, that we're actually observing, we're actually looking. And we have to remember to do that, that this is in fact what is right view. Right noble view is actually looking at what's going on to where wrong view, a noun, is a wrong view, a world view, and right ordinary view is also a conceptualized view. But noble right view is observation directly, using your eyes, using your ears, using the body, using what you have to be in the here now. So as we're experiencing the here now, we can begin to talk about that which we're experiencing. Like, in fact, the breath does feel good if you start watching it. If you don't think the breath is, it feels good, then stop doing it for a while. Then when you take the next breath, you'll really enjoy it, I bet. And you will pay attention to it in the here now. Wow, a breath feels really good. So if 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 a breath that we have been starving for feels really good, imagine that every breath feels good. We're just not paying attention to it. We're too busy conceptualizing. We're too busy being afraid of something that doesn't exist. Like being afraid of the boss. Guess what? The boss is not going to strangle you. He's not going to take your breath. He's not going to kill you. So why are we afraid of the boss? All he's going to do is best is yell. Right, but we become afraid of things for no reason at all. Why is that? Because when we're little kids, we're completely defenseless. We're completely helpless. As little kids, we are victims. And we grow up with that mentality and we stay victims. And so we're out looking for the dangers to avoid the dangers that happened when we were in diapers. And those dangers don't exist anymore, but we think about them as if they do exist. But if you start observing what's happening right now, you can recognize that whatever it was that I was afraid of is not here right now. Wow, isn't that nice? I can feel safe and secure. Practice feeling safe and secure. Practice talking yourself into feeling safe and secure. Try it. I mean, it's a marvelous experience. Almost all our lives we're spent is being afraid of something or another that could possibly go wrong. And then it doesn't. And so we'll think of something else that could possibly go wrong. And it doesn't. And then we'll think of something else that could possibly go wrong. And it doesn't. 
if we begin to start recognizing, wait a minute, things don't go wrong like I was expecting, that right now nothing is wrong. Right now everything's marvelous. Right now everything is wonderful, in fact. And I can take this breath and really enjoy it. I can pet that dog or give that little puppy a, a, a treat and say, right now, here's your treat. Isn't this marvelous? And begin to treat yourself with that being comfortable through security. I mean, what a treat it is to feel safe. What a treat it is to feel safe. Imagine that you're in the Ukraine and there's the air raid bombings and uh, uh, the air raid shelters and the air raid uh, sirens going off. And then all of a sudden things go quiet. The siren stops, the bombing stops, and everybody takes a deep breath, a sigh of relief. Wow, we survived that attack, right? So recognize that you're attacking yourself on a regular basis. Stop the air raids, stop the bombardment, and just relax. What are we air raiding? It's the conceptualized thoughts that we have. The incoming uh, artillery is only mental, and we can stop that and take a deep breath and relax. Just relax. Isn't it great that the bombardment has stopped for a moment? We can relax, take a relief. So begin to practice that, oh, what a relief it is. Wow, I feel safe and secure and comfortable. And begin to talk ourselves into feeling safe and secure and comfortable. And as we do that, we begin to change also the feeling of being satisfied. We can begin to say, okay, finally, at least I'm okay right now. I feel satisfied. And when we recognize over and over that we can get into that state, that begins to change our attitude of, well, I can feel safe. I can feel secure. Look, I'm doing it right now. Isn't that marvelous? I actually feel safe and secure right now. Think about it, guys. You're safe and secure right now. There is no problems right now. Isn't that marvelous? I have to say, I noticed that, though, even, even like without the self-talk, just being in the present direct experience, the thinking just shuts down anyway, and then immediately it the just discursive erupts. thought does. Yeah, not yeah, thinking, but the discursive thought right. changes direction. That begin to pay attention to it, rather than giving a uh, uh, let us say, uh, it's it's almost like that we've got a television and a radio going on, and one right. of them's real and the other one we're not paying attention to. Okay. Yeah, and, and that natural feeling of just kind of ah, just relief and, and kind of that lightness just arises even without self-talk. It's just like, ah, we just hear sensations, see sensations. Things are just there and it's good by itself. Uh-huh. So that sense of relief, that sense of relaxation, that sense of taking a load off, that sense of being light, that's enlightenment. Right then and there. 
Sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't. And if you practice it, you can get it more often. And if you don't practice it, it doesn't. And that practicing it and getting it, that's the treating of the dog. That's that's the reward that we give our puppy is freedom. Freedom from suffering, freedom from all of that. Robert, you got your hand in the air. Um, yeah, did you keep the puppy? Huh? I heard some dogs barking earlier, and I'm curious, did you keep the puppy um, from before, a few calls ago? You had a little, like a little new puppy. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, she's about six weeks old. And uh, she's in that state of biting everything, and she's got some brand new sharp baby teeth. Oh, that, it, that in fact, sweet. I don't know if you can see this arm or not. You see all of the yeah. points. I mean, there's uh, up here on this part of the arm. There's well, you have to push it over this way to get you to see it. But there's a a lot of bites on it because I let her bite. Because that's part of the um, bonding. But the bigger dogs, they're they're both old females that have been spayed. Okay, there are a couple of old spinster ladies, and the old spinster ladies don't want to take care of a baby that bites, <laughs> and that's the growling. Okay, but we are slowly getting it uh, together to getting them. Uh, uh, they, they know. In fact, the thing that's really interesting is, is that the bigger dogs, they don't want to come into the house. They've already given the house as the domain of the puppy. And they don't want to come in the house right now. Uh, but there's also a lot of dogs in the neighborhood, so there's a lot going on around here dog-wise. But in any case, yes, we still have the puppy. We'll keep her. That, In fact, it's Kitty's puppy. She's named it Panda because it's black and white spotted like a panda bear that's adorable that's awesome yeah you got a new member of the family mm -hmm. yeah, so always. so the puppy's in that really heavy duty biting stage she just bites and bites and bites and so i let her bite my hand uh but sometimes she wants to bite the nose when she's biting the nose or biting the ears that I want to put a stop to. <laughs> That's a little bit too yeah. much. <laughs> those, those aren't for teething. No biting on those. So, uh, do you have a Dhamma question other than about puppies? Yeah, we're feeding the puppy. I feed this puppy my arm. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just, I was just curious because I heard some dogs barking. Yeah, that was all. Thank you. So, um, let's go ahead and finish this talk with this point that uh, as we practice right watching, putting the mind in a different gear so that we're actually looking at what's going on rather than talking ourselves about how things ought to be. And start looking at really what's going on and recognize it uh, by recognition. That means that we can see what's not there as well as what is there. This is part of the practice is begin to see what's not there. What's not there? Dukkha. What's not there? Misery. What's not there? Fear. What's not there? Disappointment. 
start beginning to look at the fact that that stuff is not there right now. That everything is okay. And so we brighten the mind and by being able to practice this over and over and over again, these three things to remember to look at what you're doing and to make a change to remember to look at what you're doing and to make a change. We do this over and over again. These three things run and circle around each other, building the skills. And as we begin to build this, uh, this degree of sati, we begin to change our attitude. The attitude from, oh, this is hard, into, oh, this is easy. We change the attitude from stuff me into, wow, this is really nice. That's the attitude change. This is Sama Sankapa, and it is part of the Eightfold Noble Path. These four things, if we practice that, we'll get to the position of knowing that it doesn't matter what the mind does. It gets ourselves into an unwholesome state. When we're mindful, we can come out of it again. Eric, you can come out of your unwholesome mind states if you remember that you can do it. You just change yeah. the mind. I mean, the mind is yeah. constantly in changing anyway. They call it a monkey mind. It jumps from here to here to here to here. And now you're saying that you can't do that too. The only thing you have to do is slightly change the direction of the monkey and it jumps right into your lap or it jumps right into a happy state. Yeah, there are some little adjustments that it's hard to pinpoint them. Like, for example, in that case, I was... Uh, I forgot to separate discursive thought from the emotions that I was feeling. But now that you say it, I'll be more wary of that in the future. Okay. Right, right now. Right, exactly. <laughs> Good catch. Yeah, we will watch that. Okay, guys. Well, does anybody have any final touches on this? Welcome, uh, guests. We still have a couple of guests on. Glad that you're here. So, Bo, good to meet you. Yeah, it was, it was great to meet you uh, and everybody. Yeah, I'll be. I'll definitely be back. Yeah, look yeah. forward to it. I invite you to call me directly on Skype, and we can talk some more. That'd be great. Okay, and Robert and Eric and Todd, we'll see you guys later. Thanks so much. Does anybody have any parting shots? This is a great talk. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for putting all this material uh, online. It uh, you know really really helpful. I found uh, changing the practice over the last literally week my pleasure. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, been my mood's been much better during the day, and and the practice has just been so much more enjoyable to do than what I was doing before. But yesterday, I was actually I was meditating with my feet in a cold bathtub because it was a bit hot here in Vancouver, and I I burst out laughing halfway through the session because I was <laughs> just having a good time. Yeah, yes, so, laughter it. is the best medicine. Yeah. Okay, guys, we'll see you later. We we'll see yeah. you, Robert. Bye, everyone. All righty. Bye. Bye, Bye, guys.